We would like to say a special thank you to Dr. David and Pat Meyer of Brookings, South Dakota, for sponsoring this week's episode. Yeah, this is uh, John the Baptist is saying this. He's taken out his long bony finger, which he's usually pointing at you and pointing out all of your sins and all the things you need to repent for. Nice. But here he's finally giving us something we can use, and he's showing us who has come to take our sin away. What's up, everybody? And welcome back to Scripture First, the podcast that explores how the Lutheran lectionary is working in your life. I'm your host, Mason Van Essen. John, the gospel writer, describes John the Baptist's landmark statement, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Adam, Curie, and I point out how, without context, this phrase doesn't make a lot of sense. What does it mean that Jesus is a lamb? Can lambs take something? And is there a difference between taking away the sin of the world and paying for the sin of the world? Luther House's Nick Hopman describes how important it is that Jesus is bearing the sin of the world and how the early church and Christians today want to keep God clean and struggle with Jesus bearing the sin of the world. We finish with how incredible that act of grace truly is. Let's get to it. Here's John chapter 1 verses 29 through 42. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and declared, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but I came baptizing with water for this reason, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have testified that this is the chosen one. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples. And as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, Look, here's the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher. Where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated anointed. He brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. And now on to this week's conversation. Welcome back to Scripture First. We have Nick Hopman with us this week. Thanks for being here, Nick. Always good to be here. You got to keep me away. <laughs> <laughs> so, Never. yeah, exactly. 
We are in uh, uh, John uh, chapter one, Nick, uh, and this is the, the the beginning of the text. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and declared, "Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world." Whenever we uh, begin like this, it's always uh, good to ask who is saying this because it's not quite clear. Uh, uh, and it's quite the thing to open with, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, this is uh, John the Baptist is saying this. He's taken out his long bony finger, which he's usually pointing at you and pointing out all of your sins and all the things you need to repent for. Nice. But here he's finally giving us something we can use, and he's showing us who has come to take our sin away. So this is John the Baptist. Uh, John the Evangelist, of course, has this soaring language in the first chapter, his preamble is called his prelude, in which he says that the Word was with God and the Word has become flesh. And, uh, you know, the Nicene, the Council of Nicaea didn't have much on him. He's coming right out and <laughs> stating this. And uh, we hear here that Christ is the Son of God. That doesn't necessarily mean exactly what the people at Nicaea thought, but it's a very strong declaration of who Christ is. Um, but John has a different role in the Gospel of John than he does in the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, here we don't even find out for sure that he baptized Jesus. He just apparently saw what happened to Jesus uh, when he was baptized. Yeah, uh, and this uh, picks up in the 32nd verse. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him, and I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize uh, with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So um, there's no, yeah, there's no narrative ab about the baptism. It's almost uh, post fact. It's after the fact that John's just kind of saying, I, I've seen this happen. Yeah. And he's saying, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, so is the one he's referring to God? Gotta be God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Some people think that there was perhaps even some sort of polemical intent from John the Evangelist here because uh, it didn't go like it was supposed to go in which all of John's disciples instantly became Christ's disciples like we hear in the second half of the reading here. Um, probably at the time that John was writing this gospel, there were people who thought that they, well, who were still disciples of John the Baptist. Hmm. And so that's been speculated by the historians that... Uh, John the Evangelist is actually cutting John the Baptist down to size. Now, of course, he's telling the truth about John the Baptist, but he's just saying, hey, listen, this guy here, his job was to testify. Mm -hmm. He was a martyr, as the Greek says here when it talks about testifying. He was a witness mm -hmm. of Christ. That was his role. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot here in this first paragraph, um, and a lot of it is revolving around John and what John is saying about Jesus. Um, but then the end of verse 33 and into verse 34, he says, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have testified that this is the son of God. So last week um, we got into talking a little bit about baptism with pastor Lars Um but can you give me a little bit more context on what exactly is needed to do baptism? Lars mentioned that you have to have the Word of God. Is there anything else you need, anything physical, in order to perform that? Yes, you can have a baptism without water. So you need water and the Word. 
And John is always distinguishing himself from Christ. And one of the ways he does that, he also does this in the synoptics, is talk about I baptize with water, but he baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Real quick, what is the synoptics? Oh, I'm sorry. The synoptic synoptics, I can't say that. <laughs> <laughs> the, the regular Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. <laughs> That's the cool uh, Bible scholar name for the other three Gospels. I'm uneducated. <laughs> okay, gospels. thank you. Sorry. Well, you pronounced the word correctly, at least. <laughs> Don't worry, I didn't. I accidentally put an M. Okay. <laughs> Let's move on from that word. I'm not going to try so, it <laughs> Okay, so shoot, what were you saying right before well, I that, interrupted that John, you? John, John distinguishes himself from Christ, and one way he talks about is that he does not baptize with the Holy Spirit. Now, the way he has stated it has led to a lot of arguments that true baptism of the Holy Spirit is somehow apart from water. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of church groups that will claim that. But um, uh, Christ, of course, institutes baptism after his resurrection. And so it's not a difference between water and spirit. It's a difference between spirit and law. John's baptism is a baptism of the law. The law has its own mechanisms for making things right. um, And that's what John has been sent to do, prepare the way with the law. Mm -hmm. But he's actually got two jobs, as we see here, and he gets away from baptizing his legal baptism, he gets away from accusing us, Mm -hmm. and he becomes a witness to Christ, that Christ is doing something different here. Mm -hmm. And of course, this even goes back in, you've got all that soaring language in the first 15, 18 verses of the Gospel of John, but even there, when John seems to be talking almost metaphysically, if we wanted to use a bad word to (laughs) accuse him of, he still stops and he says... The other thing you got to know about this Christ, this Logos, Mm -hmm. is that he's not Moses. Mm -hmm. Moses (laughs) came to bring the law. Christ came to bring grace and peace. And here we get that defined a little bit more in the 29th verse, how he's bringing grace and peace. Yeah. Maybe we can go back to Nick and just ask, what's it mean when... John says, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's it's a a phrase or a sentence we hear a lot of time Mm -hmm. in the church, but uh, if you just think about it, without any context, it almost is... It doesn't make really much sense. Yeah, what? What? Yeah, a yeah. lamb? Lamb of God. Lamb of God. Who who takes, and then sin, I mean, sin of the world, too. Exactly, yeah. I mean, the Bible historians tell us that there was um, some sort of, uh, you know, Jewish talk in the post-biblical times about an apocalyptic lamb figure, and that might have something to do with it. But the generally more solid explanations are that this is a reference to Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant who's uh, bearing sin. Why exactly does the lamb come in? Um, well, most people think that this is a clear allusion to the Passover lamb. So oh, okay. as, the, as the Passover lamb gave its life and its blood to save the Israelites, that's exactly what Christ is going to do. Mm-hmm. So it's quite an interesting thing when you think of it in larger terms. Uh, I mean, the lambs sacrificed on Passover were not what the Bible calls sin offerings. They were not uh, somehow making payment for or propitiation or atoning for sins. Uh, the lambs certainly paid a price. God needed their blood on the door, um, so they paid for the Israelites' freedom with their life, and so does Jesus. But there's no 
not the slightest hint here of any sort of accounting type of theology mm-hmm. um, because Christ is taking the sin. And much better is what it actually says, who takes away the sin in the world. He bears the sin mm-hmm. as it promises in Isaiah 53. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he bears the sin. He doesn't pay for the sin. No, Which there's a price to be paid. taxes for the sin. <laughs> well, yes, there's a, there's a price to be paid when you have sin. Yeah. The wages of sin is death, and, and Christ, in his forgiveness, has to pay for his life with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but we want to be careful that we're not contradicting John the Evangelist and saying uh, Christ really is sort of a new and improved version of Moses, or we're not contradicting, even worse, John, John the Baptist and saying, here is the Lamb of God who pays for the sins of the world. Mm-hmm. He's actually taking it away. Yeah, and that, that that might actually have some reference also to the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement. You mm-hmm. know, the, the goat actually bears it away somehow. Mm-hmm. It's always been really interesting for me ever since Luther House to hear how important language is, because um, I know in other churches, other congregations they don't focus on it so much and it's the the greek and the latin and how it actually is translated is just i don't know it's very intriguing to me and maybe it's because i don't really speak any other languages um so you always want what you can't have but it is really interesting to see how large of a role it plays here especially when it comes to being able to relay the gospel correctly so thank you i i appreciate that Sure. Yeah, and it, it's along those lines. It's worth saying that you know this is this line here, which is so key, is is pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. You know, there's not yeah. really any uh, translating controversies or anything. Yeah, Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Yeah, and John uh, can't stop saying this either. The next, mm-hmm. uh, this is in verse thirty-five. The next day, John again was standing with two his, two of his disciples. And as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, look, here is the Lamb of God. So he's, <laughs> uh, he's, he literally like a, he's a broken record almost. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he says it so often, he even left off the last uh, part yeah, of it exactly. there. He's like, this has it was just a technical assumed. term. Everybody you know. knows that he's taking away the sin. Yeah. Real quick, the disciples, when it says two of his disciples, mm-hmm. is it saying two of John's disciples or two of Jesus' disciples? Two of John's disciples, yeah. Exactly. It's it's John the Baptist's disciples, and uh, you know now they're being pointed out. The, the the testifier is giving way to the Messiah. Interesting. I won't get into the weeds here, but no, that's... off a podcast, I'm going to have more questions on why his disciples. <laughs> no, that, that's important. And uh, you know, I I gave a talk on this recently for the Luther House, but it's it's important to understand that the Greek word here, to get back to your previous point, is metheton. Um, which basically means people who are taught. Disciple is from deshere in Latin, which means to learn. Why am I saying all this? Well, because we instantly see disciple and we go to discipline. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, in most types of learning, especially if you're going to learn a foreign language, discipline is key. Mm-hmm. But this is a very strange type of learning that Jesus is imparting to the disciples and so <clears throat> it's important to not get completely caught up in this word discipline and think that disciple, being a disciple is all about discipline, which mm-hmm. is something that happens all the time in sort of the popular language. What is it that I am supposed to do? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to think if I'm a disciple and there's something to do. Exactly. And, and the same thing goes in Matthew 28, same word there. 
Go, Jesus is essentially he's saying, go and make teach to people. Mm-hmm. Go and make learned people who have learned, who have heard this word. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then going off of that, in verse 37, the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and saw them following. He said to them, what are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? <laughs> yeah, I think these disciples Groupies. were, uh, their, their job, <laughs> their day job was housing inspectors. They wanted <laughs> to make sure that Jesus' landlord was obeying all the rules. I gather that's what's happening. I really hope that's not correct. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, show, it shows the spontaneity of faith that they hear that this is the Lamb of God, and all of a sudden they're following him, trying to ask him questions. Uh, you know, this is, this is the way it works when you hear something new. This is the way it worked for Dr. Paulson. You know, he would, he would have to kind of go incognito around the seminary campus because everybody was always trying to catch him and ask him questions. <laughs> mm-hmm. That doesn't surprise me well, we see that, But we see this often with Christ. Christ is mm-hmm. retiring, you know. He's, yeah. Everybody wants him, and so he has to go away to rest, to pray, all sorts of things mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we hear uh, him open uh, it up. Uh, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. And one of the two who who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew. And you hear uh, Simon Peter's brother. Uh, He first found his brother Simon and said to him, "We have found the Messiah." So they they uh, they know. A, A, they claim to have found the Messiah, as if John didn't just point him out. <laughs> John literally says this over and over and over. It's like, hey, this guy's the Messiah. Hey, this guy's the Messiah. <laughs> oh, look, we found him. <laughs> but uh, uh, they they too seem to have some sort of freedom, like you were saying, Nick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're, they're, they're honestly excited by it. They're not being told, well, uh, that's the Messiah, but, you know, you have to do this, that, or another thing to prove you're a true disciple of the Messiah. Yeah. And maybe you can say one or two things that uh, John says Lamb of God uh, twice, and they uh, say Messiah. Mm, and Good catch. Uh, is there, I mean, is there any significance to that sort of language change or... Um, well, it's just like we said at the beginning of the podcast, if, you know, Lamb of God in no context, everybody hears that, that goes to church every Sunday, and so it's kind of become second nature, but it's good to reflect on the background of it. Same thing with Messiah, of course, which is a, a long-standing Jewish tradition that they're hoping for the Messiah promised in the uh, Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, to come. I think what... John the evangelist is doing here is he's just trying to hit all these things. Yeah. He started, you know, he's still in the first chapter where he's got the logos and then boom, Lamb of God, Son of God, Lamb of God, Messiah. Anointed. He's basically yeah. saying you can take all any tr- Jewish tradition you want, pick whichever one suits you, and this is the guy. Mm-hmm. This is where the action is. Mm-hmm. So on a Sunday morning, what needs to be focused on? Because there's a lot here, and some of it isn't as important as other pieces. I focus on what time the service starts because I come after. I have to wake up early on Sundays. <laughs> That's my first concern always. Oh, phew! <laughs> uh, it's got to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so you have to, that's that's the key, I think, to preaching this, because you're trying with your preaching to actually cast people's sins off unto Christ, um, just as happened here and happened on the cross. 
Um, so that's, uh, for instance, we're, we're right now at the Luther House writing our lectures for our course on the second article of the Creed, our Christology uh, course, you know, the whole process from the Council of Nicaea to the Council of Chalcedon on defining who Christ is and everything. Well, uh this goes hand in hand with who Christ is. You're proclaiming who he is using all these names that we've talked about. And then you have to say what happened. And even the, even the early church had a great deal of trouble. That's why there was all these processes with all these heresies, because everyone wanted to keep God clean. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They all liked John 1, 1 through 4. Uh, certain ones really liked John 1, 1, uh, 1.14, and the word became flesh. Mm-hmm. Um, but the one point they could really never get to was 129, who takes away the sin of the world, mm-hmm. who bears the sin. This was the whole point of the incarnation. So you've got somebody like uh, Cyril of Alexandria was excellent at talking about everything that happens to this man, Jesus, happens to God Almighty. Mm-hmm. And he, he, he despised... Nestorius, because Nestorius wanted to keep God clean. He wanted to keep God uh, out of Mary's womb, at least in the language. You couldn't call her the mother of God. Mm -hmm. And Cyril says, you're missing the whole point. This is what it's all about. But even Cyril, uh, you know, couldn't quite get to this bearing of sin the way that Luther does, for example, in his commentary in Galatians. Uh, Nazianzu says... What what was not assumed in the incarnation was not healed. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, that's true as far as it goes. But of course, the thing is that Christ came precisely to assume sin. Mm-hmm. That's what he was aiming at. That's why he put on flesh so the sins could be nailed in him, so that he could pay the price of sin, death, and destroy it in the flesh. Mm-hmm. Um, so... This one verse, uh, those who created Christian liturgies uh, were wise in that they put the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world into uh, every Sunday service. So that will be helping you. And on that note, we've reached the end of this week's episode, my friends. Thank you to Nick Hopman for teaching us just how important it is that John the Baptist declared, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the sacrificial Lamb who bore the sin of the world, your sin, and forgave it. So many have tried to keep God clean from our sin, but that's not what Jesus came to do. Jesus didn't stay clean. He directly took on our sin and conquered it. I want to invite you to listen to Luther House of Studies' newest podcast, Sing to the Lord. Martin Luther said, Next to the Word of God, the art of music is the greatest treasure in the world. To understand the importance of hymnody in the Lutheran Church, Lars Olson and I sit down with Zachary Brockhoff each week to discuss the lectionary's hymns, their meaning, and history and how the music preaches the gospel. We hope you enjoy this new venture. Follow or subscribe to Sing to the Lord to hear the weekly episodes. Links to the Sing to the Lord podcast feed are in this episode's show notes. Thanks again for joining us this week. Remember, 
Jesus is the Lamb of God. We'll see you next time on Scripture First.